me tell you a little bit about the city of Sardis. The ancient city of Sardis had been one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. It was the capital of the wealthy Lydian kingdom, which made it a very important city in that region. And it was, uh, if you look at the map here, it was about 80 kilometers east, roughly, of Ephesus. And it was at a place called Five Crossroads. No, not, 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 not the one in Hamilton. Uh, it did have five main roads, and I don't think they had roundabouts as far as I know. But uh, <clears throat> but it had five main roads coming into the area. And, and if you can imagine in an ancient city, that would end up making it a very important place. And it was. And it ended up becoming, as a result of that, a, a very famous trade center in the region. It was also a military center because it had a uh, it, it had this really high acropolis that was virtually impregnable. Uh, but if you want to, if if you're into military history, and you're one of those hill, history buffs, particularly uh, military history, you might want to go back and read about Sardis because it's fascinating. I'm not going to. I'm I'm one of those people. I'm, I won't bore you. Uh, but it, but it, this thing was about uh, 1,500 feet high and virtually impregnable, but it, it was conquered several times, believe it or not. And uh, the main religion in the city was the <laughs> same as Ephesus. Uh, they worshipped Artemis, uh, who was also called Diana. It was one of the natural cults. And it was built on this idea of death and rebirth. It's weird stuff. If you want to read about that, go for it. But uh, Sardis was also known for its manufacture of wool garments. And by the way, that becomes important to understand what Jesus is talking about. Jesus obviously knew this and uses it as an illustration as he's talking to the church in Sardis. But sad to say, the city at that time... Uh, of Jesus speaking here, by the way, this would have been around 90 to 95 A.D., roughly. And as Jesus is speaking here, the, the city had become a shadow of its former self. And sadly, it's an illustration of what had happened to the church in Sardis. It was alive in name only. And so the message to Sardis is a warning to all churches, by the way, that... uh don't just try to live off your past reputation. Don't just live off past reputation. A guy by the name of Dr. Vance Habner, he said one time that spiritual ministries often go through four phases. And you could probably try to guess what, which phase Jesus is talking about here, but the, the four phases are you go from a man to a movement to a machine, and then you end up with a monument. The church at Sardis, according to Jesus, is in that monument stage. But having said that, with the Lord of the church, the head of the church, there is always hope. Always hope. And so, uh, let's see what the head of the church had to say to the church here in Sardis. Starting Revelation 3, starting in verse 1. Verse 1, it says, And to the angel or the messenger or pastor of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up 
and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I propose to you today from these words of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that Christ wants you to be a healthy church. May I remind you, individuals, people, Christians, saints, make up the church. Church is not a building, not a program, not a denomination. The church is alive. It's people. You, if you're a Christian, you make up the church. Christ wants you to be healthy. As usual, Christ starts by talking about himself. Gives us a little bit of his character here. Let's see what he says, because remember, whenever Christ says something about himself to these churches, it always has something corresponding to the character of that church. First of all, Christ says that he has the seven spirits of God. Numbers are significant and important to God. And the number seven represents uh, probably God's favorite number. Seven and three would be his favorite but it, but it re- represents something in fullness. It's something that is complete. What is complete here to Jesus? Well, he's, he's talking about the seven spirits of God. And the point is that Christ is the one represented in his church through the Holy Spirit. There's not seven Holy Spirits. <laughs> there is one Holy Spirit, and he is complete. He is sufficient. He is full, and so the, the, the number seven is showing you here this reference here to the Spirit's fullness. And Jesus is not there in person. Remember, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's, he's what they need. And he's what we need, too, don't we, right? Uh, the second thing Christ mentions is uh, another seven here, that Christ has the seven stars, again, showing completeness, but what, what's that referring to? Well, the stars, uh, again, read the corresponding passage in chapter 1, we see that it's referring to these messengers or the pastors of these churches. And the imagery here is showing, again, Christ has completeness, and, and He is the one who is sovereign Lord over His church, and how does He mediate His role in His church? Christ appoints leaders pastors in his church and that's why in Ephesians 4 for example it it mentions that that Christ gives to his churches these leaders he appoints these pastor teachers they're a gift to the church so that's who Christ is he is Lord and head of the church he 
He reigns supreme over His church in fullness and completeness. This church needed to know this. They needed to believe this, and they needed to act on this. But sadly, they were not. So Christ chastens them here. Look what he, look at Christ's chastening. Number one, he said that this church had a reputation of being alive. But notice what Jesus says in verse 1. They're dead. They're dead. Though they had this outward appearance that was fooling a lot of people, the Sardis church could not fool the one who knew all things. <laughs> Jesus knows all things. He sees all. He knew their works. He sees their heart. And so, with this infallible knowledge, Christ pronounced this church to be dead. That's freaky. <laughs> that's, that's scary. Now, there's, there's some danger signs that, that we could be a dying church. Let me read to you what one commentator said. It's on the screen here for you. Quote, A church is in danger when it is content to rest on its past laurels. Referring back to its past reputation. And so, when it is more concerned with liturgical forms than spiritual reality. When it focuses on curing social ills rather than changing people's hearts through preaching the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ when it is more concerned with material than spiritual things, when it is more concerned with what men think than what God said, or when it loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the word of God Himself. End quote. Those are all signs of a dying or dead church. Now before you go and point your finger at churches all over the world that are dead, it's more important you look at yourself. <laughs> Let's look at ourselves here. This message from the Holy Spirit is for you. Not just this church. It's for you as well. Now, friends, we need to be very careful because not only has the inspiration of Scripture been under attack for centuries, I'm, I'm actually more concerned about the sufficiency of Scripture under attack today. We have whole movements that are, that are attacking the sufficiency of Scripture. This is a crucial doctrine that you must understand and believe. You must defend. It concerns me greatly, because if we, do, if, if we do not believe and uphold the sufficiency of Scripture, we will die. This is one of those signs we need to be aware of. Well, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of signs there. I hope you're, but uh, just take note of those, because this church, even though they had the reputation, Jesus says they're dead. You cannot rely on past experiences. Jesus also says, number two, their works were not right in God's sight. Their works were not right in God's sight, according to verse two, as he says. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And so this church here was going through the motions. They're playing church. But Jesus says their works were not complete in the sight of God. In other words, friends, what is Jesus saying? Their works were insufficient. Those works were 
unacceptable to God. So think of it this way. They had been weighed on the scales by the righteous judge of the universe, and they were found wanting. To illustrate this, I I think it's helpful to go to the Old Testament to illustrate what's happening here in this particular church and the dilemma that they have. There's a sad story in the Bible about Samson. And he's an apt illustration of what's happening here. Uh, Despite Samson and and all the wonderful gifts and responsibilities God had given to him, and those, those great feats of amazing strength, his life ended up becoming a very sad and tragic story. There was a woman named Delilah who tempted Samson to compromise. Eventually, he ended up giving her, giving in to her because she was constantly pressuring him to reveal the source of his strength. And Samson ends up telling Delilah the truth, and as a result, uh, you know, really dumb. <clears throat> Guys, I hope you can learn something from the story. But um, uh, anyway, Delilah ends up having his hair cut, and he ends up losing his strength because he disobeyed God. And the enemy comes in and and ends up seizing Samson. And uh, when he tried to defeat the enemies this time, he did not have the strength to defeat them. And so they captured him, destroyed his eyes so he could no longer see. They bound him, paraded him, made fun of him, mocked him. Tragically, Samson did not know, the Bible says, he didn't even know that the Lord had departed from him. That's scary. That's scary. It's a warning to all of us. Though he was the same man, the Bible says, the power had been removed from him by God, and the result for Samson was he was imprisoned, he was blind, he was humiliated, and finally he died And by the way, it was the same for the church of Sardis. Once spiritually alive and strong, we see now, for the most part, they're blind and they're weak, and many of them don't even seem to realize that God has departed from them. So now what? Now what? Well, as usual, the head of the church often gives counsel. He gives a solution. He is the great physician after all. He knows the solution. He knows the remedy. And so look look here. The church of Sardis, if it was to survive, it desperately needed life. Christ, fortunately, blessedly, gives him five steps to follow. He gives him five steps to follow. The Lord gave, in fact, we know this because there's five commands in the Greek language here that, lead, that would lead them to spiritual life. Right. First of all, in verse 2, Jesus said they needed to wake up, spiritually speaking, not physically. The problem is not sleeping physically. The problem was they were sleeping spiritually. According to verse 2, Jesus commands them, wake up. They needed to open their spiritual eyes. The Christians needed to look at what was happening in their church. They needed to evaluate their situation. They needed to get involved in changing the problems confront the sin and make a difference. By the way, friends, 
if you haven't noticed, we have the same problem in our country. The church on the whole has gone to sleep. It is apathetic. And as we're going to learn in the last church, Christ is about to throw them up because we make him sick. That's the danger here. We need to wake up. We need to see things as Christ sees things and act accordingly. And so he commands them, wake up. And number two, he said they needed to be strengthened. They need to strengthen. Well, strengthen what, you say? Well, look at verse 2. They needed to strengthen what remains. By the way, what what are those remains? What are those remains? The, The remains, by the way, in the Greek language is neuter. So that tells me it's not referring to people. If people are not neuter, uh, according to Greek, it would be referring to some spiritual realities. Think of it as a fire. When you make a fire, and you know, at first it might be a, you know a big fire and it's really intense, a lot of burning and heat and light going on. Eventually, you know, it burns down and, and, and all you're left with is little ashes and coals. And so Jesus is saying, hey. uh, fan into flame the the dying embers that are left of your spiritual realities. Whatever those are, whatever you have left, fan it into flames. Strengthen them. Good advice. Number three, Jesus says they needed to remember. According to verse three, what, what, what is it that they needed to remember? Jesus says they needed to remember, look what it says, they needed to remember what they had received and heard so they needed to go back to the truths of the word of god they needed to remember the good news of the gospel of jesus christ and and all of the teachings of the apostles all of those teachings they needed to be like the early church you remember acts 242 they devoted themselves to the apostles teachings by the way by this time This is somewhere around A.D. 90 to 95, roughly. The Apostle Paul's letters were in circulation. Apostle Peter's writings would have been in circulation. The Apostle John's writings are obviously in circulation. And so we have the rest of the New Testament had been written at this point. And so the Holy Spirit is saying, go back to those. Remember what you have received from the Bible, the entire Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, what you've heard. It's interesting what the Apostle Peter even had to say about the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches and to to, uh, some of the people in the Bible. I just want to highlight, this is interesting. Because in 2 Peter 3.15, the Apostle Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, he says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I just want to highlight for you, friends, the Apostle Paul's letters, the Apostle John's, the Apostle Peter's, and the other apostles, 
letters and books of the Bible are Scripture. Scripture according to the Holy Spirit. They must be heeded. They must be obeyed. That's the solution. Number four, they needed to keep. Jesus says they needed to keep. Friends, it's not enough to just remember. Jesus said to remember. But as you remember those biblical truths from the Bible, you must act on God's truth. In fact, you have just set yourself up for serious judgment if you know something and don't do anything with it. Because to whom much is given, much will be required. See, we we have to obey the Word of God. That is what Jesus means when He says, keep it. It's not enough to just know something. You have to act upon that, do something with those realities. Sadly, many were not. And so Jesus says they needed to repent. Number five, they needed to repent. And so the Christians here were to confess and turn away from their sins. And so these were the five steps that the Lord of the church had given to a dying church as the remedy for this dying church. And so if those steps were ignored, then Christ says, I am promising to to bring severe, imminent judgment, and it will fall on you, and I will come at any moment, and it will... Be unannounced like a thief. How many of you have ever had a thief enter your house and they put a letter in your letter box saying, I'm coming at such and such a date, at such and such a time, so be ready? Smart thieves don't do that. And Jesus is a smart thief. And he's saying, I'm coming. You need to be ready. Well, the same goes for all dead churches, by the way, and anybody in those dead churches, because Christ is commanding you and others to wake up, repent. There is a solution. I've read some commentators, by the way, who would disagree on, on the next point in your notes, number four. I do see some, some commendation here. There are some biblical commentators who say, There is no commendation from Jesus to this church. Okay. You tell me what you think from Scripture in verse 4. I'm seeing some commendation here because verse 4 says this. Yet, that, that sounds like a contrasting word, doesn't it? Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That sounds a lot like commendation to me. And and so notice what Jesus says, first of all, that some, not all, some in the church have not soiled their garments with sin. So even here in a dead church, (laughs) Jesus calls them dead, Jesus can see there are some who are still part of his remnant. some, Some who are still faithful in some way, even though this church is filled with unsaved people. And so there were a few genuine Christians among the hypocrites. There are a lot of people playing church here. They're playing church, singing the hymns, reading the Bible, right? Using Christianese language, hiding weeds amongst the wheat, tares amongst the wheat, Did you notice how Christ described the faithful remnant here? 
he, he, he mentions there were some who have not soiled their garments. That word soil means to defile or to pollute. In other words, Jesus is saying some haven't defiled and polluted their spiritual garments. It, it, by the way, that word was something that would have been familiar to people in Sardis. May I remind you, they, they were a part of the wool dyeing industry. So they, they understood what a soiled garment was all about. So what have they not soiled, though? Well, the pure garments in the Bible symbolize godly character. It symbolizes godly character. You say, well, where is that in the Bible? Well, here's a cross-reference that shows this. Revelation 19, verse 8. The Holy Spirit says, It was granted to her, to cl- that's the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen, notice, it's not physical cloth. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So Jesus tells you what it's referring to here. And you say, well, okay, what's the point? Glad you asked. Because Christ is saying that the faithful could come into God's presence because they had not defiled or polluted themselves. Instead, they had displayed godly character, and so Christ commends them for that. He also commends them because some in the church are worthy here to walk with Christ. Now, in ancient times, such garments were were worn for various reasons. Uh, One reason they would uh, wear white garments was for celebrations and festivals. And so because they these some of these people had to refuse to defile their garments, Christ says, well, I'm going to replace your clean garments with divinely pure garments. And by the way, the white robes of purity are even worn by Jesus himself. Read the book of Revelation. He talks about it a few places. And you say, well, what's the point in this? Well, those who have a measure of holiness now, Jesus is saying this, that he's going to give to you perfect holiness in the future. And so you need to pursue holiness now. It has an effect even on the future. And so Christ challenges the church here with some really good stuff. Look at look at the challenge in verses 5 and 8. Number one, we, we see here that Christ mentions that Christians are going to be clothed in white garments in the future. Uh, again, may I remind you, why white garments? Well, I can assure you Jesus was not a Mormon. This has nothing to do with Mormonism. Okay? All right? That, that is not the point Jesus is making. Now, in the ancient world, you need to understand, what, as, he, as he writes to the ancient people here, white garments were worn by, uh, for these special occasions. Uh, they would be worn to festive things such as weddings. It wasn't just the bride who might wear white on her wedding. Christians, by the way, are going to wear their white garments at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You say, is that in the Bible? Yes, look at this. Revelation 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. That's Jesus. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, Bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
The context there is a marriage celebration. When the groom, who is Jesus, is going to marry his bride, the church. There's going to be a great celebration in heaven. And we get to wear white. Now, white robes were also worn if you were celebrating a great military victory. And the Bible says that Christians are going to be victorious. We are victorious over our three enemies, sin, death, and Satan. Now, it's interesting here in Revelation 19, just take note what the Christians are wearing at the moment when Christ returns just before the millennium. Because the millennium is chapter 20. This is one reason I'm a premillennialist. One reason you should be a premillennialist. Because notice Christ is coming right before the millennium in chapter 20. And notice what they're wearing. Because it says, Revelation 19, verse 14, The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We see in Scripture, Jesus likes white. He's going to clothe all the Christians and the saints returning with him. They're going to be clothed in white. And you will get to ride a white horse. So even those of us who are not riders will be able to ride on white horses. How cool is that? Anyway, because I'm, I'm one of those, so I look forward to being able to ride one day. But uh, please remember, folks, that the, the, the white garments here are representing purity and holiness and your righteous deeds and works. And you say, what's the point that Christ is making? Well, Christ is promising to clothe all Christians in eternal purity and holiness. That's really important because Jesus says that in Matthew 5, without holiness, without purity, nobody can see God. And so we're going to be complete, and it's going to be permanent. Which reminds me of what John Bunyan, who understood this very well, what, what he was saying in, in the text we were just looking at this morning from the Pilgrim's Progress where in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, after his burden falls off his back and, and his burden rolls into the tomb, did you notice there were three shining ones, by the way, who represent the Trinity, and they each have, a, have an office to fulfill and they each have a very special gift for Christian. The first shining one says, Your sins are forgiven. That's representing God the Father to whom belongs pardon and forgiveness of sin. The second shining one, Bunyan says, stripped Christian of his rags, clothed him with new clothes. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus takes away the rags of our own righteousness. Then he clothes us with a new robe of his righteousness. The third shining one, it says in Bunyan's work here, he set a mark upon Christian's forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it. That's the Holy Spirit who, by the way, according to Romans 8, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You want to know if you're a real Christian? If you're genuine? 
do you have the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit says, do you have Him? That is your seal. That is your guarantee. And so He imprints that that mark of ownership, and then He gives you the roll of the parchment, which Christians need to keep. We need to read. We need to... We need to be instructed. We need to present that at the gates of the celestial city. And so the seal is the seal of the Spirit to to certify the credential and authenticate its message. And so notice Bunyan's trying to teach us here that all three persons of the triune God have a work to do here, and each has its own office to fulfill. And praise the Trinity... For, for the work that they do, which we could never do for ourselves. Jesus goes on to mention that Christians, number two, will never have their name removed from the book of life. This is a, a passage, folks, you can hold on to for the doctrine of eternal security. You can believe it that you are eternally secure by passages like this. Now, may I just remind you that, hopefully this is a reminder, that in the first century, rulers would keep a register of the citizens of a city. And so if somebody died, their name would be erased from the book, from the register. And so you say, well, that's nice. What's the point? Well, guess what? Christ promises never to erase a Christian's name from his book called the Book of Life. And so if you are a Christian, Jesus is saying you have something called eternal security. If you're in the book of life, your name is never going to be removed. That's awesome news. That's great news. But don't fool yourself, friends. Because you can think you're in the book of life when you're not. So beware. Has Jesus put your name in that book. Does he know you? Well, hold on. It gets even better because number three, we see here that Christians will have their name confessed by Christ before God the Father. (laughs) Jesus even says in the Gospels, those who confess me, I will confess before my Father. Now, why is he doing this? Well, Christ is going to affirm that the conquering saints belong to him. Christ is teaching again this eternal security of the believer. It's a glorious truth taught throughout the Bible. It, it kind of reminds me of my favorite uh, animated movie, Toy Story. In Toy Story, there's there's this little toy named uh, named Woody. It's a toy cowboy. If you've never seen this movie, it's awesome because at one point the owner of that toy writes his name on the bottom of his boot, and it said Andy. And so Andy's saying, this toy belongs to me. It's special. It is my toy. And it's interesting, elsewhere in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm going to write my name on my people because they belong to me. You are his possession, and you are precious in his sight. That's a glorious truth. Now, you know, we, we, we must understand this and believe this. We don't want to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Right? One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Romans 8. 
Look what the Holy Spirit says to you, friends, in Romans 8, verse 35. Because he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And you say, Oh, oh, I know. I know what can separate me from the love of Christ and keep me out of heaven. I got one. It's, um, is it on the list? Well, here they are. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just in case, whatever idea popped into your mind that could keep you out of heaven from Christ, and you're saying it wasn't on the list, the Holy Spirit put it in the last part there. It's in that last part. Nor anything else. That covers everything that might not have been on that list for you, friends. That's eternal security. Once you're in the Father's hand, there is nothing and no one that can take you out of His hand. So we must know that our name is in the book of life. And so last we see here that Jesus mentions that the Christians must hear the Spirit's messages, plural messages, to the plural churches. So my friend, notice the Holy Spirit wants you to hear this urgent message as well as all the urgent messages because here is imperative. And says is present tense in Greek. And so the idea there is the Holy Spirit is still speaking to us even today from the Word of God. By the way, these letters were supposed to go around apparently to all the churches. And they were supposed to be proclaimed to even, obviously even us today can still learn from these. And so the letter to Sardis ends here with an exhortation to heed this counsel to heed these commands, to heed these promises that it contains. So let me just talk about three groups real quick. Number one, friend. Friend, if you are a spiritual zombie, you are a walking dead person, according to Jesus. You, If you're one of these people who's just playing church, then you need to heed Christ's warning of impending judgment. Because the all-seeing one of the universe knows what's going on. He sees your heart. You might be playing church. You might be hiding amongst the saints, but He knows who you really are. He knows what's going on inside you. He knows if you are real or not. He knows if your name, His name is on your boot. Take heed, friends, because you, you are not safe. If Christ hasn't written His name in your name in the book of life. You cannot hide. And friend, if you are an apathetic one, and uh, heaven forbid that anybody should attend an unhealthy dead church, 
well, God, Jesus has some news as well, because he's saying, wake up before it's too late for that church to be saved. May that not be our church. May we be a healthy church. And may we take heed to the signs of a dead church. And may we help the many who are in dead churches in unhealthy churches. I hope you'll take it on as your responsibility. Go talk to those in dead, unhealthy churches. Try to help them. But if you are the faithful one, then take comfort in this knowledge here, friend, that your salvation is eternally secure. You're not holding on to yourself. Jesus is holding on to you. And He's given you the seal of the Holy Spirit to confirm that and guarantee it. Well, what happened to the church in Sardis? Did they heed Christ's warning? Did they have a revival? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's interesting because history tells us that not too long, just a few decades after the Apostle John writes these, these words to the church in Sardis, there was a, a very prominent person in church history called Melito. I don't know if you've heard of Melito. I didn't, I didn't really hear of him before. But he was a very prominent man who actually served as the bishop in Sardis. And this was several decades after the Holy Spirit wrote these words to the church. And so this, this maybe we could argue that there's some hope here for the church in Sardis. Maybe their light wasn't totally extinguished. Maybe, hopefully, they, they revived it took note of what the head of the church had to say. So, friends, until Christ returns, it is not too late for other dead churches to find the path to spiritual renewal. It is not too late for you, friend, if you are dead. If you are dead, listen to Jesus. Wake up. Repent. Return. Come, come to Him. See the reality of who He is and this impending judgment that can be avoided. So, May God enable us to conquer. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you make us conquerors? We're thankful that you are the all-seeing Lord and head of the church. May we see you as Lord of our lives as well. We must not ignore you. We must take heed to what you have said. May we believe, may we keep, may we obey, may we act upon what we see here. We ask for your grace to live this, this out in our own lives, that, that we would be a healthy church. Would you wake the New Zealand church up and, and the church around the world? Wake them up. We know you have many ways and means doing that, and we're certainly seeing some of that happen in some places in the world, but uh, we, we pray that you would protect us from ourselves, our own sin nature, and from this world, and from Satan, our, our three great enemies that, that are constantly trying to take us down and cause us to compromise and distract us and put us to sleep. May we, may we be aware of their attacks. May we, may we be aware of your solution. Protect us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. We know that your kingdom is great. We look forward to the day when we can live without our sin. We, you'll make us as you are yourself. 
May we be faithful until that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.